Thank you, worship team. As Pastor Sheldon mentioned, the, the curious title of the message today is How to Make Your Life Miserable. So if you were invited here today by a friend or a colleague, I, I, I'm just saying, <laughs> an interesting topic for us to consider. It, it kind of fits, though. We started uh, at the beginning of this month with a new series. We titled it Refresh, and it's, it's about the search for happiness, but but not really happiness as we tend to identify with it and, and search for it, but the deeper biblical concept of joy. We know that in psychology and in uh, human development studies, there's more research going on in this area than there ever has been into what it is that leads to sustainable happiness in people's lives. But we're grounding this study not so much in modern research but an ancient little book, in the book of Philippians. Joy is the grand theme of that book. It permeates it from beginning and end. It, it ebbs and flows through all of the pages. And what's really amazing about Philippians is, is what we know of it and its author. It was written by Paul. Is that the letter was probably written from within the confines of a Roman jail cell. And if ever there was a moment for misery, that was it. But again, the grand theme of the book is joy. And as we were talking about last time we were in the series a couple of weeks ago, I started thinking, what would it be like if that were the defining characteristic of the church of Jesus Christ? If we were known not so much for being judgmental or hypocritical or proud or all those accusations get hurled against the church, some justified, some not. But if we were known for infectious joy. What would that be like? People that were just hungry for joy. People, in spite of the fact that it's so elusive in the world, found it and claimed it and owned it and just resonated and vibrated with it. Which brings us to the strange topic for this morning, how to make your life miserable. And obviously we're going to come at it from the opposite direction. You know, the Bible commands us to be joyful. Misery is actually a condition that only one person in the spiritual realm revels in, and that's the evil one. What I want to do today is is read with you through a passage early on in the book of Philippians and uh, and draw out and contrast a series of four kind of misery-enhancing strategies for life with what Paul is actually teaching and modeling in his own life. You'll find notes in the back of your order of service of what those four points are. If suspense is something that just robs you of joy, you can have a look at that now. But if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to pull your Bibles out right now and turn with me to the book of Philippians. We're going to be there in the first chapter, and we're going to start in verse 12 this week, Philippians chapter 12. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of these chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become more confident in the Lord, and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true. That some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others 
out of goodwill. And the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm here in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is this, that in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And yes, I I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and through God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And I I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So what should I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain here in the body. And so convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with you all for your progress and joy. Your joy in the faith so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Let's pray for just a moment. God, these, these searing, inspiring words of Scripture that, that come to us through all the centuries, preserved through the wonder and the miracle of your written word, I pray that these words would live today not just on the page, but in the lives of those who hear them, and that the contagious byproduct wouldn't just be understanding, but lasting and sustainable joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is an extraordinary man, Paul, an extraordinary life that he lived. Four misery-enhancing strategies that we're going to contrast with what he actually does. Here's the first one. If you want to make your life miserable, wait. Wait to be happy until all the circumstances are lined up just right. And if you do that, guess how long you get to wait? (laughs) Forever, right. Forever and ever. Notice a phrase. Paul uses it in verse 12. What has happened to me? He says, I, I, I want you to know what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It's important. He uses the same phrase again in verse 19. Maybe you want to mark it if it's your Bible. It says, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. In other words, he's talking about The circumstances, what has happened to me, my situation, my circumstances will not be a barrier to my joy. What were circumstances again? In prison, right, in chains. Imagine you're thrown into a Roman prison. The the first emotion that crosses your mind is not likely happiness or joy. 
And Paul says, I want you to know how I feel about what is happening to me, my circumstances. You might think that I'd be discouraged sitting here in prison. To the contrary, he writes, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard that I'm here in chains for Christ. In ancient times, to, to be in prison, we, we, we imagine dungeons, you know, with cells and, and stone walls. That's not prison. To be in prison meant you were physically chained to a guard. To whom is Paul physically changed? He's, he's chained. He calls them Caesar's guard, the king's guard. These are the elite soldiers that are, that are cordoned off from the rest of the regiment in order to serve Caesar directly. And, and now he's... He's tied to them physically. And you know what that means? He can talk to them about Jesus all day long. And they can't get, it's like being on a flight, sitting next to somebody and on the, and you can't escape. And there it was. And he's saying, listen, I've been trying to figure out how to get the gospel to Rome, to the palace, to Caesar and his people. And now Caesar is chaining his guys up with me. <laughs> and I'll just say, do you want to hear more about Jesus? And And the conversation goes on with them. Paul doesn't think he's the prisoner. He thinks they're his prisoner. Do you want to hear about Jesus, Paul says. He goes on to say, and I'm facing this ordeal with with courage and with joy because it feels like I'm not alone. Jesus is here with me, and, and he always is. And moreover, because Jesus is here with me and he's using this opportunity and other people know about it, Christian brothers and sisters, others are hearing about it, and they're growing bold, and they're getting excited. And the example that that Christ is using of my life is being played out in other people's lives, and this whole thing is spiraling joyfully out of control, and it's wonderful. We looked last time we were together at, we called it the happiness paradox. You remember what it was? That, That... I can never be truly happy if the ultimate goal of my life is happiness. If we throw all of our resources and attention in that direction. As it turns out, happiness is one of those things that is best achieved as the byproduct of something else. And what we called that a couple of weeks ago was, was the meaningful life, the purposeful life. It's kind of like this. If, if you aim your arrow at the bullseye's, uh, bullseye of happiness, you will miss the mark. But if you aim it at meaning, somehow you get happiness thrown in. The meaningful life, it turns out, is the road to lasting joy. That's, that's the happiness paradox. We come this week to what you might want to call the happiness illusion. And here it is. It's the illusion or the belief that I will be truly happy in life if all of the circumstances are just right. If everything that happens to me is exactly what I would want to happen to me. Now, it sounds like that should be true, right? But what we know from experience and from a ton of research that's been done in this area is people are notoriously bad at predicting what's going to make them happy. We just don't know. If I had this job, if I had this salary, if I had this spouse or this marriage or this car or this body or whatever it is, then I'll be happy forever. And the problem with those things is not that they don't make us happy. They do, but it's a flash and then it disappears. It's that they're not sustainable. They're not sustainable over time. You know the word happy 
It's actually, it, it, it's a very old word. It turns out it's an Icelandic word. I don't know many Icelandic words that made it into English, but it's the Icelandic word hap, H-A-P-P, and it's the same root from which we get the words happenings or happenstance or haphazard. And the idea was this, happy or happiness is something that happens in me, a feeling when the happenings or the happenstances of life line up properly. And what that means is that it's always going to be a very fickle thing. Because the minute they don't line up properly, the feeling goes away. Let me take a crack at, if we can, at trying to, to bring out the difference between happiness, which is the word that we use most often, and what the Bible talks about as joy. And here's the key difference. Happiness generally is identified as an emotion, right? It's a feeling. Feelings can be hard to define, but we know them when we experience them. You know what it's like to feel happy. Um, All feelings have kind of a they have kind of a push or or a pull to them. Either something's pleasant and I'm drawn to it; it's got pull, or or I'm repelled by it's unpleasant. I I, I want it away from me. And, And all feelings pretty much break down as to either positive or negative. Positive ones: happiness, pleasure, delight, curiosity, contentment, peace. Uh, The unpleasant ones, anger, fear, bitterness, sadness, depression, worry, all all that stuff. We just want to push it away. The feelings themselves are so powerful that we want to put them right at the center of our lives. So when we greet people, we say, Antoine, how are you feeling today? How are you feeling? Uh, We virtually never ask, how are you thinking today? thinking is important, but we we don't ask, we don't engage at that level. We live for emotion. It wasn't always that way, but it's certainly that way in our time. Paul talks an awful lot about the difference and the difference that it makes when we get this right. In one of his letters in Galatians, famous passage, Galatians 5, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. You know the one? Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, understanding, that long list of attributes. Here's the thing about that list. A great writer, a man named Dallas Willard, says this about the fruit of the Spirit. These are not feelings. These are not emotions, love, joy, peace, patience. They're what might be called preconditions. They're the conditions that govern or shape a personality. They're part of your character. This is your basic life orientation. And it's stable across circumstances. For example, because it's kind of, I know it's kind of theoretical sounding. One of the, the fruit of the spirit, part of it is love. Love is the will to good, right? You will good things for someone. A person who is in the condition of being a loving person consistently wills the good of those around them. But here's what's interesting. If I idolize the feeling of love, if what I crave is the emotion of of being loved, it often means that I will not do the hard work that's necessary in order to demonstrate love, and as a result, I will not receive it. Be 
being someone consistently in touch with, being loved by, pervaded by the grace of God. And out of that, desiring good for people around you. That's not a feeling. That's a condition, an understanding, a basic orientation of life. Let me give you another example. Peace. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit, right? Peace is it's the assurance that things will turn out. Peace is not my, my will constantly striving and pushing. It's the assurance that, that God is sovereign. God's in control. And all is well. Now, that's different than peaceful feelings. Remember there's that song in the 70s, Nathan? Uh, I've got a peaceful, easy feeling. You know the what? Is it the, the Eagles? The Eagles, right, right. 70s, greatest decade for music, right? 1770s, Mozart, Beethoven, the Bach family. Yeah. Yeah. We idolize that peaceful, easy feeling. And as a result, when we don't have that peaceful, easy feeling, what do we do? We medicate ourselves. We get into conflict avoidance. We don't do the hard work required to enter into the condition of being a person who is at peace with God. So the peace of Christ reigns in our lives. Then we come to joy, part of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy. Joy, in the biblical sense, is this pervasive sense of well-being. And the Bible has a word for it. It's an Old Testament word. It's a Hebrew word, and and many of you know it. Some of you I've even seen have necklaces with the word on it. The word is shalom. Shalom. Sometimes we translate it peace, but strictly speaking, it's not peace, or it's not just peace. It's something that that comes from God, and it's it's not a feeling. Uh, Joy is, is not just an emotion. Joy is not a choice. It involves choices, but joy is this condition into which I must grow. We're joyful because of Jesus. We're, we're joyful because he modeled shalom in his life, because he taught about it in his teachings, because he died to obtain it for us before God and, and to ensure it. He was resurrected in victory. So here's Paul in chains in prison with this pervasive sense of well-being. The circumstances just didn't matter. I mean, it's so interesting, again, our language. We greet each other. We say, Edmund, how are you doing? And sometimes people will say, oh, I'm okay, given the circumstances. That's not joy. Joy says that God is over the circumstances, that we don't live under those things. Joy is a condition that shapes our whole life. So, I mean, here's... Here's the first point. If you want to make yourself miserable, wait for the circumstances to be just right. If you want to live in joy, you don't ask God, why am I not in those circumstances? You ask God, where are you in these circumstances? Right here. Who could I help in the middle of this? Who could I serve today? Who could I inspire today? God, will you be with me here in the middle of this? If I'm, if I'm going to be with God at all, I've got to be with him here, now, in the middle of all of this. If I wait until the circumstances are just right in order to connect with him, I'm going to wait and wait and wait. Okay, here's, uh, 
Here's the second one. The rest are faster for you clock watchers. If you want to make your life miserable, compare yourself to lots of other people. Notice what Paul says. He says, some are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. Others out of goodwill. That latter group, they do so motivated by love, that precondition. They know, they know that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But that former group, they're preaching why? Out of selfish ambition, not sincerity. They suppose that they can stir up trouble for me here while I'm in chains. Notice that there's these people, they're, they're jealous, they're envious, they're comparing themselves. These, incidentally, are not folks outside of the church. These are the church people, right? They're in church, and instead of focusing their lives on helping those outside of it, they're saying, hey, look at Paul. Why is he so much more successful than me? Why is his ministry reaching so many more people than mine? I wish I could be better than Paul, right? I wish Paul could decrease and I could increase. We do this, right? We compare ourselves. We compare our marriage to someone else's. If it's better or easier or happier than mine, I'm miserable, right? I compare my salary and my house and my automobile and my kids and my body and my looks, IQ, education, the whole thing. We compare. Where are we on the levels of success? And when we envy someone, not only am I unhappy because I'm I'm not getting what I want. I'm unhappy because of the things that they are are getting. Their achievements make it worse for me. I'd be more miserable, or I'd be less miserable if they were more miserable, right? (laughs) I think I told this story years ago, but tell me afterwards. Woman dies. Goes to the pearly gates. Asks St. Peter, how do I get in? Peter says, this is bad theology, all right? How do I get in? All you have to do is spell one word correctly. She says, what's the word? He says, love. L-O-V-E, she says, and she gets right in. See, really bad theology, Nathan. Two years later, St. Peter asks if, if she could watch the gate for him. And a few hours later, she's at the gate, much to her surprise. She's watching, and up to the gate comes her husband. <laughs> How are you doing? She asks. There's that question. Said, well, actually, quite well. You remember that beautiful young nurse who took care of you during your last days while you were dying? I married her. And then you'd never guess, but we won the lottery. <laughs> and we sold that little house where you and I live. And we bought this great palatial mansion. And my beautiful new wife and I, we were skiing in the Swiss Alps. And that's when I had the accident that, well, landed me here. I thought, boy, I'm glad to be in heaven. How do I get in? She said, well, you just have to spell one word correctly. Czechoslovakia. (laughs) Did I tell that one before? I I think so, yeah. Here's the thing about comparison. You will never see a happy, jealous person. Why do we do that to ourselves? Paul talks about these two groups of people. Some people watched Paul's ministry and they said, thank God. And other people watched the same thing and said, why God? Why him and not me? But why can't it be me instead of Paul? Again, it's interesting how how modern research lines up with biblical wisdom here. A study done recently at Stanford talked about this, about the way that folks compared each other. And here was a hypothesis going in. They thought unhappy people compare up, 
What they meant is that they will look at people who have more stuff, more success, more money, more health, more possessions, and they'll be unhappy because of that. Happy people, they thought, would compare down, right? They'd look at people who have less money, success, education, and it would make them feel good about themselves. Turns out they were wrong. I mean, they were not completely wrong. They were half wrong. They were right about the unhappy people who do tend to compare up. They were wrong about the happy people. You know what they found? They don't compare at all. They just, they don't get into that at all. Instead, they use deeply held inner values as the yardstick for how they're doing in life. And they show concern when other people are failing or struggling. They don't revel in it. Here's a great, great place to start with this this week. If there's somebody in your life who you envy, you wrestle with those things around comparison, pray for them specifically. Somebody in your field, somebody that you work with, somebody that you know. Uh, Sheldon and I were, were in the church pastoring business. I don't know what that means for you, Sheldon. That means that this week I want to get on my knees and I want to pray, God, would you pour out your fullest blessings on the meeting house and portico and church on the Queensway? Just can they be great? Can they do great things? Because it'll bring joy to you. Instead of, how did they get so big? Why can't we be that big? Boy, I love their building. Why can't we have that building? Nothing good comes of that. Here's the third one. You want to make your life miserable? Go it alone. Do it all by yourself. One of the biggest misconceptions about the Apostle Paul, a lot of people think that this, this is a brilliant but cranky, difficult solo flyer in the life of the New Testament. But if you read his letters closely, you see this, this strikingly different picture painted. Look at the language just in the first chapter. You have your Bibles? Look in chapter 1. He says to the people that he's writing to, verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. Verse 4, he says, in all my prayers for you, I'm always praying with what? Joy. There it is. Look at the emotion here in verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And can you imagine how it felt when they read these words from Paul? God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He calls them his brothers and sisters. And I don't think that's just because he forgot their names. He pours his life out for them. and, And when he does, it fills him with joy. There was a study done on longevity, another recent study. For this one, the researcher's hypothesis was this. Those who would lead the the longest, healthiest lives would be those who had lots of people around them that were caring for them. So they felt cared for. And again, as it turns out, they were wrong. In fact, they were almost completely wrong. The people who lived the the longest, uh, the most effective lives were the ones who had others that they cared for. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's just life in the kingdom. I think it's just the way that we're made. Paul says this in verse 25. Have a look in your Bibles. I'd love to go and be with God. But I think if I keep on living, it will bring joy to your face. So I'm going to do that. Let me give you a magic application number. 
You might remember when we did that little vital signs series on relationships, we used this number, but here it is again. Researchers find that pretty consistently in any relationship where there's a good ratio of encouraging, uplifting, building comments to, to the critical, negative, difficult comments, where there's a good ratio between the two, a relationship will flourish. You remember what the ratio was? Five to one. At least five to one. John Gottlieb, one of the leading marriage researchers in our day, says he can, he and his research can predict with an astonishing 90% accuracy whether a couple in marriage will end in divorce based on listening in to only five minutes of conversation. You know what they're listening for? Listening for the ratio. Five to one. Same thing is true in families. The same thing is true in churches. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, let's encourage each other and let's do it daily. Let's make it a habit, a mark of the church. Here's the last one. You want to make your life miserable? Adopt pessimism as a life orientation. Now, who would do that? Of course not. But let's probe a little bit deeper. I think the nasty underbelly of pessimism is sarcasm. How much humor in our day is sarcasm? A negative understanding of people, of life, of circumstance. Some people do that. Lots have been written about this. Lots about optimism in our day. One writer talks about the difference between what what they call big optimism and little optimism. Little optimism focuses on little hopes. I, I hope to find a convenient parking spot on Young Street. Uh, I hope, or, or, or when I go to MCBC, one that's not in the, you know, the, the ditches that are out there. Uh, I hope that I see somebody at church who I like, and they save me a seat. I hope the sermon isn't too long. Good luck with that. <laughs> big optimism focuses on the big picture. We're on the verge of something great. There's something magnificent going on. This is a great time to be alive and serving in God's church. And boy, God has so much for us while we're on this planet. Optimism as a personality trait is mostly a good thing. Associated with health and the ability to persist and having friends. And Sometimes, though, I mean, it, it can be dangerous. Sometimes we can be overly optimistic in ways that are destructive. I can go on and smoke and smoke and, and eat and eat or whatever and, and not worry about any of the health consequences. Optimism needs to be based in reality, but it's a good thing. Paul has this orientation in life that's so powerful that the word optimistic just wouldn't cut it. So you know what he does? It's one of the fabulous things that he does in this little passage is he actually creates a word. There's no word there that's sufficient. So he creates a word to describe for him what it's like when he gets up in the morning. Have a look at verse 20. And what he does in verse 20 is he jams together three little Greek words. One is the word from. The next is the word head. And then the third is the word stretch. He jams them all together and forms this compound word. 
in verse 20. And the image is like this. It's, it's, a, riot, it's, it's a runner who's, who's so excited, who's, whose muscles are just pulsating and twitching and, and ready to move, so ready to get to the finish line, can't avert their gaze. Nothing's going to distract them. They're stretched out, head forward, whole body leaning, every fiber of their being, every cell straining to get where they're going because they just can't wait to get there. And even that word that he makes up is not enough. So, and so Paul adds the word hope. And sitting in a prison cell, not knowing if he's going to live or die, is a real person. He says, I eagerly expect, straining from, from head to toe forward, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, that I'll have courage now and always, that Christ will be exalted in me, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ. And you know this verse, and to die is gain, right? What are you going to do with a guy like that? How are you going to stop a guy like that? What prison can hold a guy like that? That's not little optimism. That's not groundless, mindless optimism. That's Christ. For Paul, the optimistic life is summed up in Christ. He's inspired by Christ. He's guided by Christ. He's loved by Christ, held by Christ, sustained by Christ, he's intoxicated by Christ. He serves Christ, loves Christ, follows Christ, trusts Christ, lives for Christ. Christ is the magnificent obsession of his life and the orientation of all reality. And therefore, when he faces chains, challenges, prison, he has this great two-word question that he throws up in the face of all adversity. It's there in verse 18. It's translated, but what does it matter? I have all these problems, but what does it matter? In Greek, it's actually, it's a lot punchier. Jarvis, Greek, 101. Two tiny little words. Tiskar. Even sounds good to say it, right? Tiskar. Tiskar. So what? Big deal. Who cares? Tiskar. I have a great question for you this weekend. Something goes wrong and things are going to go wrong. Something goes wrong through the week. What will you say? Tiskar. So what? The AC goes out. So what? We'll get it fixed. The car breaks out. So what? We'll get it fixed. I'm not getting along with my wife. So what? I'll get a new... No. <laughs> the pastor messes up. So what? We can send him to pastor rehab school in Jamaica or something like that. But the point is this. Failure, disappointment, chains, prisons, suffering, poverty, leaf fans, martyrdom, whatever. So what? The important thing is that in every way, this magnificent Christ, crucified, resurrected, takes primacy in our lives. And because of this, Paul says, I rejoice. Because of you. I can tell you that no matter what happens today or tomorrow, I'm just going to keep on rejoicing. Because that's a feeling that's not rooted in circumstances. It's the precondition of my soul. I just live with this pervasive sense of well-being. It's the only rational response to the resurrection of the Redeemer. And it really is God's great, so what? Big deal. Who cares? Whatever. Flung right in the face of darkness and despair and disease and death. That's what joy is. 
So why don't you go on out there and spread it around where you're having brunch. Come on back for 1230. You don't want to miss that. But Next week, we're going to talk about the rather shocking secret that happy people have learned. I'd tell you now, but then you won't come back. And we want you to come back. You bow your heads with me and, and let me pray with you. Maybe right now everything going on in your life is, is just great. Your relationships, your family. You just want to take a moment and savor it. You don't want to take it for granted as often we do. So take the moment now. In deep humility, you just say, God, thank you. You're so good. God, you've given so much. And I just want to say thank you. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. Didn't merit it. God, thank you. Maybe right now you're in a prison. The prison is called loneliness. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's a prison of grief and loss. This is what God would say to you right now and what God said to Paul in that prison cell 2,000 years ago. Or to you, To live is Christ, and to die is gain. I thank you for the great, magnificent, so what, of a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb. May our joy overflow to the delight of our world and to the glory of those who you love. That we pray all this together in the name of Jesus, who came to bring joy. We pray in the name of our crucified and risen Savior. We pray it together in Jesus' name, and together we say, Amen.